Uh, We are in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Jesus, or Egypt, he said to Sari, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So you are my sister, or say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life will be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was indeed very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with, well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of sorry Abram, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Thank you, Jen. Um, I thought it was a little ironic in some ways that the first worship song we were singing this morning was uh, How Much We Hunger and hungering for God, and uh, we had uh, almost 40 guys last night at Meat Night in America, and uh, where we had a lot of meat, and uh, I kind of feel like I have a little bit of a meat hangover this morning, so I'm hungering for God. I'm not really hungering for meat at all this morning, uh, but uh, um, that was, if, if you didn't come to that, uh, I, that's fine, And but um, it does feel like our intentionality was like for the Lord to really be forming a, a brotherhood uh, among the guys of the church to form a sisterhood among the ladies of our church and not just to be people that kind of, as our culture is, you know, we kind of like come in and out and live our own kind of like social platform lives and have our whole life kind of like catered around to us and, and our preferences, but to truly like like set those things down and move towards actual humans and move towards people. Um, and I was just grateful for that last night and um, grateful for how the Lord's forming that. And um, as we're in the second half of Genesis 12 this morning, um, like it, it just sounds like the Lord is using the book of Genesis to grow us. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, um, and my, my heart is that all of us would have hearts open this morning to how even this passage that seems so far away, such a life that doesn't describe our lives, that maybe you'd be shocked, that we'd all be shocked this morning of like, I had no clue when that lady read that passage. <laughs> I had no clue how the Lord was going to get that passage into me and, and form me through that passage. And um, so God, we do, we do ask you that, that we would have eyes that are open to see ears that are open to hear, minds that would be open to learn, hearts that would be open to be changed by God's word. We look to you to do those things. Thank you that you are about doing those things as you pursue us. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, Yeah, because I just think like we do hear a lot of conflicting messages throughout the week. Um, We could 
it just feels like that is kind of part of the, the air we breathe is the air of conflicting messages. Um, we, uh, I feel like sometimes it, maybe you feel like you're swimming in a sea of criticism, maybe sinking in a sea of criticism, uh, maybe a sea of discouragement. And as we start verse 10, I just hope that we would see a sea of truth washing over us, a sea of um, freedom, a sea of life, the waves of life washing over us all. Verse 10 starts by saying, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And Scripture is never meant to be, it's powerful enough that you can step in anywhere and Lord willing be changed, but it's meant to be in context. You know, it's not, you don't like be like, hey, here's my favorite movie. Let me play the favorite movie for you. And maybe it's like Braveheart and you, you only play the like freedom, like that section. And you're like, you're crying. You're like, isn't that great? You know, and everybody else is like, no clue what's going on. You know, I have no idea why that moves you so much. It, it, because it's in context that it moves you so much. And part of 10 is there's nine verses in front of it. And the nine verses in front of it, God coming to a man whose whole world is flipped upside down, that his dad has died, his brother has died. Um, he's promised that there will be people coming from his lineage that will change the world, that will bless the world in untold ways. And his wife is barren, has been barren for decades. And it just, his promise kind of seems like a joke. But the one who is promising it is powerful to do all the things he promises. And Abram's like, yes. Everything you just said to me, the yes is on the table. And it's like, man, this is, this man of faith, Abram, and then verse 10 starts, now there is a famine in the land. And so coming off the heels of God promising Abram a new country, a people, promises of making his name great, a great lineage, God blessing Abram, immediately after these promises, there's a famine. And the famine is so bad that Abram feels like he has to leave that place so that they don't starve to death. I mean, none of us have ever been in that state. Um, I, I read a guy, Oz Guinness. He's, he's an author that I really love how he thinks about Jesus. And um, his family, they were missionaries in China right before World, World War II. His brother actually starved to death. Oz Guinness's brother, and they actually had to flee, and he, he lives in the U.S. now in Washington, D.C., um, Oz does, but, um, you know, it's like, that's a world that I've never experienced, but Abram, like, you know times are tough when you actually say, like, we have to go to Egypt or we are going to die. There's no other solution here, and you could say, well, why are they going to Egypt? What's happening in Egypt? It's the Nile River. The Nile River is a gift to this whole region. The Nile River is a gift to Africa. That when all creek beds have dried up, when all ponds have dried up, when all lakes have dried up, when there's no rain, you know that the Nile River is flowing steady and strong. And it's not dependent on any of those things, and it's that way today. 
It is a majestic river, and it keeps flowing. There's water. There's hope to survive in Egypt. And more than once in the Bible do people go to Egypt so they don't die from famine. And so it's a natural place to go. And it doesn't say that God told Abram to go to Egypt. Abram just goes to Egypt. So we don't know, did Abram spend a lot of time praying about this, um, or did he just go? Um, And I think for those of us caught up in this moment, for Abram in this moment, right on the heels of God's great promises to Abram, it kind of feels like the promises are in jeopardy. Like, is this still going to happen? Like, I kind of felt like a hero two verses ago, and now I wonder, is it all falling apart? You know, it's like when you, like, really decide you're going to get out of debt, and you, like, make these massive changes to get out of debt, and then every vehicle you own breaks down that week. And, like, every, and you're like, did I really hear from God? Did I really do what I was supposed to do? Because as soon as I said yes, I was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, (laughs) you know, following my yes. Um. So what's going to happen with Abram and Sarai? There's no way these promises maybe are going to come to pass. So verse 11, like if you just have verses, verse 10, you're not going to know for sure where Abram's at. Verse 11, we see the frame of his mind. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abram is a man of faith. If you say, who is the great man of faith in the Bible? The Bible is going to tell you Abraham is the answer. You will win that Bible trivia question all day long. In this moment, that faith is nowhere to be found. I think in our culture, we'd be quick to cancel Abram. I think we'd see him as a fraud. We would see the first nine verses of chapter 12 as fraudulent, as And maybe even we'd see that the whole following God thing is maybe a fraudulent endeavor. Our culture is quick to write people off, to question their whole existence in a moment like this. Abram, I would propose to you, Abraham is a man of faith. And here he is faithless. Who's the man of faith in the Bible that we should follow? Abraham. Here he is faithless. And remember, we don't come to Scripture to confirm our thoughts. Here are all my ideas about God. Let me go to the Scripture and find all of my, my you know, backup. We don't come to Scripture to confirm our thoughts. We don't come to Scripture to confirm our biases, to confirm what we already know. We come to Scripture to have God's thoughts become our thoughts. So instead of making judgments right now, I think we should posture ourselves to say, okay, you have my attention. 
Abraham kind of sounds like me many times. I'm leaning forward to see what happens now. God had appeared to him. Abram was a yes when God says, this is what I'm going to do in your life. Yes. Go this way? Yes, go that way. Okay, we're going this way. But now it feels like the script has changed. He's not in the land where all that happened. They were going to starve to death if they stayed there. He's now in a foreign place. Abram really believes the Egyptians are going to kill him. And he really turns into that being a reality that now he's not thinking about his wife, really. All of the, like, um, they will say this is wife, then they will kill me, they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that may go well with me. She might be like, hello, there are two of us here. How's it going to go with me? But this is Abram speaking because he's thinking, she'll be okay no matter what. I am ending here. And I think one thing, it's good in Scripture just like, chew on that for a while, and we don't know the backstory. We don't know why Abram thought that way. There's a reality, maybe other people are going to Egypt, because the famine is hitting everybody. Maybe a bunch of people are going to Egypt, and maybe a whole bunch of dudes have been killed. And maybe it's like, hey, I'm not making this up. Remember Frank and Joe and Charles? Like, they're wives of Egyptians now. So we can do it this way. Say that you're my sister. And part of the custom here is that, that as Egyptians, now remember they, they've gone from Canaan, which was kind of like a small power in the, in the land. Like you know, if you look at military might, Canaanites are, are lower. The Egyptians are the top. There's no country that is more powerful at this time. Archaeology has backed it up. Everything is backed up. No country at that time was more powerful than Egypt and the pharaohs of Egypt. They have the Nile River. They have unlimited resources because of the way that they can tap into the Nile and flood areas and all that stuff. Their crops are great every year. And what, but the, the cultural in that we think Abraham was taken was that when you marry somebody, you give a dowry. So you actually like pay up big time to be able to, to have a wife. And so Abram positions himself that if I'm the husband, I'm killed. If I'm the brother, I'm negotiated with. If I'm the brother, I'm getting paid. Um, I'm benefiting if I'm the brother. Hey, you're the older brother, huh? Hey, we're interested in her. Well, it's going to cost you. So is Abraham just trying to get money, or is he buying time? If you're my sister, they're not going to just kill me right away. If you're my sister, there's going to be a long negotiation, and maybe we can figure out something along the way. So giving him like the biggest benefit of the doubt of what's happening here is it seems culturally very likely he's buying time in the endeavor of trying to not die from famine and not die by the Egyptians. And I just see Abram telling Sarai, I've got this. I've got a plan. I'm handling it. 
And I feel like a major point for us to grow wise through this passage and to take heart is Abram handles it instead of handing it over. I think in this moment of like, yes, oh no, oh no, oh no, it's like, okay, I, I've got this. I can handle this versus I've just been talking with God. I need to hand this to him. I've got this really complicated situation and uh, I need to hand it over, but he handles it. And I think it's easy for us to be like, I'm not sure this is going to end well for you. I'm not sure this like crafty plan that you've developed is going to play out well. And I think it's easy to see this from a distance. But man, I've just even been thinking this week, like it's hard to see it in our own lives. It's harder to see it in our own lives where like we make sense. Our rationale makes sense. And we're handling it instead of handing it over. Handing it over to God to direct what should happen. Not for us to just sit back on the couch and be like, well, he's going to take care of it. But to say like, hey, I'm actively looking to you. I'm actively ready for you to direct what we should do here. I believe the promises that you've given us are not going to work well if we're both dead. The promises you've given to us aren't going to function if we starve to death here. And what you've promised, um, like, I, I, I don't, here's an idea I have, um, but I hand it over to you, letting you carry it and letting me lay down the worries of what could happen. Then verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Abram was right. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And just, uh, this is an aside, but Sarai is over 60 years old at this time. You know, so these aren't like spring chickens. These are, you know, like people who have lived a lot of life. And, and they're enamored with her beauty. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, like Abraham thought they would. And he had sheep. Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abram is treated like the beloved brother-in-law. You know, you're going from like, oh, they're brother. That means you're going to be my brother-in-law. We're going to, like, this is actually going to be a positive relationship. It, it goes well for Abram. He starts raking in the dowry. But it's not the go well that is needed here. Great wealth is not worth it if Sarai is now married to Pharaoh. And it's unclear that they actually did get married. It doesn't seem that they did get married. Um, it's, Sarai likely was brought into kind of like the initial engagement type place in this cultural moment. And, you know, it brought, brings up a question like, was Abram meeting with Sarai every day? Were they talking? Was he planning their escape? Was she like, what are we doing? You know, this is crazy. Like, I'm like soon to be the queen of Egypt. And this is not. So they go from like, 
hey, here's our strategy so God's promises don't get ruined, to like our strategy is ruining God's promises. What we're trying to do to like help out God is actually making it so that we are quickly, like, like the wheels are falling off my plan. I had no idea, because Abram no way, in no way says that, that he's going to go straight to Pharaoh, that she's going to go straight to Pharaoh. He's just thinking the Egyptians, and maybe I could, and I don't think he thought that was, she was going to go into like Pharaoh's palace. It's like, oh my gosh. And even if Abram and Sarai had the best of intentions, this plan is getting away from them. And that's what happens when we handle big things over God handling big things. It gets us away from, from him. Abram's plan, instead of preserving their lives and God's blessing, it, Abram, not Egypt, Abram truly puts it all in major jeopardy. It is a failure, like clear loss column for Abram. Total failure. And just on Palm Sunday, it, uh, you know, today where we're supposed to be and entering into this week is that Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's, he's officially entering the city where he won't leave the region until he, he kills death, rescues us. He kills the penalty of death on the cross. Then he kills death itself and the power it has by being the only human to ever conquer it by by rising from the dead so that we can follow him down that same road with faith in him. And when he enters Jerusalem, he's entering, he's entered a world where we have tried to handle it instead of handing it over. And he came because we've been trying to handle it and it's gotten far away from us, got away from us from the get-go. He enters Jerusalem. He inserts himself into our story to rescue the mess we've made. In verse 17, we see his heart has always been the same. God inserts himself into the story to rescue the mess Abraham, Abraham has made. Verse 17, but the Lord inflicted or afflicted Pharaoh. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Abram's been too caught up to say that this is my wife. And Pharaoh's like, this is your wife. It takes Pharaoh to give clarity to the moment. Here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Keep the dowry. Get out of here. Sarai never speaks in this entire section. We don't know her heart. We don't know her mind. 
A lot is happening. Is she ashamed of her husband? Was she in on it? Was she helping him in this plan? Um, where is Sarai in all of this? We never know. Um, she, she does go along with her husband's faithless plan. And we never hear from Abram. Outside of him saying, you're my sister, he never speaks either. He, he doesn't say a single word outside of this. He doesn't let us know what his follow-up plan B was when it all fell off the rails. He never gets to say anything. Sarai never says anything. They're silent. Pharaoh is not silent. <laughs> he kind of takes over the microphone. Pharaoh is not silent. God is not absent. In all the mess that they've made, post-faith, Pharaoh is not silent. God is not absent. The plagues are referred to here as great, great plagues. Pharaoh and all the others are plagued so badly, it's very obvious what's brought on the plagues. Doesn't seem like Pharaoh has to like consult a bunch of people and be like, why are our tummies so upset? My tummy's upset. Your tummy's upset. Our tummies are upset. It's, it's not... It's like, we are so plagued. I, it's, it's not a, my tummy's upset. It is, and, and it's probably so obviously a massive health emergency that the only person in the house that isn't whatever's happening is Sarai. And it's like, oh my gosh, oh, you're fine. Oh my gosh, this is what's happening. And as Abram's not speaking, what I love here is God doesn't give Abram a what have you done speech. He doesn't give him a tongue lashing. He doesn't give him a like, hey, are you the same guy I was talking to a couple months ago? That's you, right? And like do this kind of like uh, passive aggressive thing to try to really put Abram in his place. Um, why Abram was so devious. But what I love is God just works in a way where Pharaoh questions Abram. Abram should have trusted God's promises. Instead, Abram trusted his own scheme and God intervened. And I just feel like, a, like what has moved me the most this week as I've been, been soaking in this uh, what's messing with me and I hope messes with you, it might even sound a little scandalous, and I think it is, which is the object of our faith is stronger than our faith. The object of our faith is stronger than our faith. So what I, what I mean by that is, is the God who's created everything shows up and says, hey, I'm going to do this in your life. And Abraham says, okay. I accept. God, you know, when we talk about having faith in Jesus, when the Bible talks about the great faith of Abraham, we quickly see Abraham at times is faithless. Abraham is far from perfect. He's going to have worse failures than this coming up if he thought it was possible. It isn't the faith of Abraham that's the big deal. It's who Abraham is putting his faith in. It's the object of his faith. 
the one his faith is in. He doesn't just believe this concept of God. He believes God. When God speaks to him, it's a yes. God's great promises are great because God is great. Not because of how Abraham is like taking this little thing and really owning it big time. But God is great. His promises are great. And what Genesis 12 is teaching us is Abraham is nothing without God being stronger than his weak faith. Abram says yes to God's promises. Now it's the strength of that God that is now his God that is doing what Abram couldn't do, what Abram maybe wanted to do, but it takes God to do what things had to be orchestrated at a high level that Abram couldn't connect with. And this reality should never justify our rebellion. Like, we should never be people that are like, hey, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus, and then I'm gonna live like I haven't. I'm gonna say, Jesus, you are the center of my world, and now I'm gonna live in a way like I'm the center of my world, and I'm glad that God's a God that rescues people from themselves. That would be using this to justify our rebellion. The reality that God is greater than our faith in him, it should not justify our rebellion, it should clarify our devotion. It shouldn't justify our rebellion, it should clarify our devotion. I am not a person who's devoted to my faith. I'm not saying, oh man, let me tell you a story about my faith. Let me tell you a story about what I've gone through. Let me tell you a story about how my faith has held strong through the things I've gone through. And man, I am a man of faith. Like that's devotion in your faith. And that's gross. It's shallow. It is wrong-headed. I think Satan delights at that because we're close and we missed it by a mile. We do not boast in our faith. We're devoted to him, and we boast in him. We actually boast about our weakness and his strength. That's what Paul said, and he had a lot of faith. But what made his faith big was because his God was big. And uh, this is one thing that we're going to keep seeing as we spend time with Abram. As we see Abram fail and fail and fail and fail. His faith keeps growing because through those things, the object of his faith continues to grow. God is getting bigger all the time in Abram's life. And it's a big point for us, a point we're going to see throughout. And, and because Abram will have huge faith moments because through all these failures, God gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a lot bigger, a lot bigger, is as the object of our faith grows in our lives, our faith grows. If we have a little God, then we're going to have little faith in our little God. And you could be as sincere as possible, but if you sincerely have a God that's this size, you're going to have faith that's, that's small, 
And yes, like Jesus said, faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. And it's not because of that, but it's because of how powerful the God is that if you have a huge God and a mustard seed of faith, you, a lot can happen with that. So if God is, is appropriately sized, as God more accurately in our life becomes the size that he is, we decrease as he increases, we say yes to him, our faith grows as the object of our faith grows. So one question for us as we, as we look to, to go out on mission together, can we say, God, I want you to get bigger in my life? It's a simple question. And don't answer it the Sunday school, you know, well, I know what the answer is, so I'm going to say the answer louder and faster than anybody else is. But to truly, like, can you say this from your life? from where your life is really at right now, from all your thoughts, all people are saying to you, your, all your backstory, can you say, God, I want you to get bigger in my life? And if you're like, no, that sounds way too scary. I kind of like him this size. And I, I like him asking me this size type things. But if it's like, man, if he's huge, I want him to be that big in my life. God, I want you to get bigger in my life. Like, can you say that? And here's sometimes a great prayer. It's the same as what we talk about as worship on Sunday. Sometimes a great prayer is, God, I don't know if I want that right now. Would you make me want that? Would you grow me to want that? If it's like, I know I don't want that. Well, that's your prayer. That's incredible conversation and community group. You know, it's not any like, oh, <gasps> It's like, that's clarity. And can we pray, God, I want you to get bigger in my marriage. My marriage feels really big. You feel small in my marriage. And maybe we're just settled. This is the way it's going to be. But it's like, God, I actually want you to get bigger in my marriage. God, I want you to get bigger in this, this area. I want you to get bigger at work. Right now when I go to work, it's kind of like the me show. And then I kind of reconnect with you after I leave work. It's like, God, no, I, I really want you to get bigger in my life at work. Then would you really ask God, what would it look like for you to get bigger in my life? So it's like, yeah, I want that. Now can you show me what that would look like? God, what would it look like for you to get bigger in my life? Um, one invitation of his pursuit of you might be salvation might be actually having a time where it's like, you know what, I'm not dancing around him anymore. I'm actually his. I'm giving my life to you. It's the first part of Genesis 12, which is God saying, this is what, I, these are, this is the land I want to give you. This is the name I want to give you. These are the blessings I want to give you. Are you in? And you'd be like, yes, I'm in. That's salvation, giving your life to him, letting him take your sin and him giving you his life. Maybe it's surrendering something that you've been controlling for a long time. Let's him get bigger. Handing things over instead of handling it. Can I pray into this for us? Lord, I, I just ask that 
I don't want any of us, I don't want to lead a church or be a part of leading a church that we just get used to maybe even hearing things that are like, oh, that, that, that was entertaining. It kept my attention for a while. And then we just leave and it's like we didn't meet with you. And I just desire that we would really meet with you, that we wouldn't play at church, that uh, you got us out of bed for a reason, you brought us into the sanctuary for a reason, you, you made it into a sanctuary from an elementary school gym to a sanctuary of your presence. And Lord, we, we want to learn, we want to be changed, we want, the, we want to have faith, we want the object of our faith to grow in our lives. We want our faith to grow. We want to lead our wife, our friends, coworkers to you. We want the light to shine in us. As you say, you're the light of the world. There's a lot of darkness in the world, and we want to just shine. And if it takes salvation to get there, Lord, in this morning, would we be saved in this place? If there's a fresh surrendering that you're inviting us into, Maybe there are parts where we're trying to handle it and uh, it's not so black and white maybe as it was in what we went through today. But Lord, maybe you're showing us this is clearly you trying to handle it and I am poised to rescue you from yourself. Would you hand it over to me? And Lord, I just ask that you know the situations. I'm not slick enough to try and project that into everybody, Lord, and I don't even want to try because that's not my job. Um, Holy Spirit, you are the one that counsels us, and I just pray that you'd be counseling every one of us right now, from the youngest person to the oldest person. Would you be counseling us? Would we be being changed because you are in our life? Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Communion is Jesus' idea of an appropriate response to commune with him. Abram wasn't rescued because he went off on his own and kind of was the hero and came back and showed God what he had done. And so we shouldn't be that way either. We shouldn't just be like, man, I better try hard so I can impress him or try hard so he can approve of me. You know, and there are all sorts of dad wounds that a lot of us have and all those things where it's like, I tried so hard to, to win his approval and I never was able to. Never told me I, he loved me or anything like that. I've heard, so, I've heard many men, and it makes me so sad, say he never told me he loved me. And um, none of this is in question with our Heavenly Father. None of this is in question when we come to the table it is Jesus saying, I love you. Hear it. I delight in you for the joy. We'll talk about this Friday night. For the joy set before me, I endured the cross. I did it all so we could be together because I love you. I want to be present in your life. I want you present in my life as I'm on mission here in rural Iowa. And communion is us laying down our attempts to appease him and receive his love towards us. Let him shower us with his love, with his presence. And so the way that we'll do is we'll have two people that are serving us communion. Do we know who those? Cody and Kim, thank you guys. Um, so uh, let's just spend time with Jesus. Let him do, if, if it's like, hey, what I'm gonna do right now is just say, God, is this real? 
Um, that's, that's a good use of our time. Uh, but if Jesus is your Savior, if you have given your life to him, please uh, spend a little bit of time, open him up, open up to him what he wants to do, uh, then rush to the table. Don't knock each other down, but you should come so courageously because of how courageously he moved towards you. And um, they'll give you the bread representing his body, wine or juice, obey your conscience there, representing his blood shed for us. And I, take the elements, uh, just hold your hands out. They'll place it into your hands with the bread. Um, and, uh, and then let's just remain standing with the elements and I'll lead us through taking it together as family. So let's come to him.